Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, which brings us to our latest entry, 1985's collection of his alter ego's works, the Bachman books. Now, so the, the whole premise of this podcast is to review, like I said, um, the, the listings of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication. So some of you might have been wondering if that's the case and that's the premise of this podcast and why haven't I been reviewing um, the, the, the books that have been coming out under his pseudonym? Because at this point in publication, he has actually published more than I've actually been reviewing because he has been publishing this entire time using the alter ego Richard Bachman. The reason that I have pushed off is because I wanted to wait until the Stephen King publication which collects the Bachman books together um, into a, a title called The Bachman Books, published now in, in 1985. Um, so it's a little bit of a cheat. Um, if, if, this, if I was being a little bit more pure to the idea uh, present within the, 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 the thesis of this podcast, then, then yes, I would have reviewed each work by Stephen King, whether or not it's Stephen King or Richard Bachman in the chronological order of when he wrote it and when he published it. So I do apologize for cheating a little bit, uh, but here we are, one way or another, um, talking about Richard Bachman. Now, in order to put Richard Bachman in in context here, I'm just going to straight up read uh, what Wikipedia has to say. At the beginning of Stephen King's career, the general view among publishers was that an author was limited to one book per year since publishing more would be unacceptable to the public. King therefore wanted to write under another name in order to increase his publication without oversaturating the market for the King brand. He convinced his publisher Signet Books to print these novels under a pseudonym. In his introduction to the Bachman books, King states that adopting uh, the pseudonym uh, Bachman was also an attempt to make sense out of his career and try to answer the question of whether his success was due to talent or luck. He says he deliberately released the Bachman novels with as little marketing presence as possible and did his best to load the dice against Bachman. King concludes that he has yet to find an answer to the talent versus luck question as he felt he was outed as Bachman too early to know. The Bachman book Thinner sold 28,000 copies during its initial run and then 10 times as many when it was revealed that Bachman was in fact King. The pseudonym King originally selected Gus Pillsbury is King's maternal grandfather's name, but at the last moment King changed it to Richard Bachman. Richard is a tribute to crime author Donald E. Westlake's long-running pseudonym Richard Stark. The surname Stark was later used in King's novel The Dark Half, in which an author's malevolent pseudonym George Stark comes to life. Bachman was inspired by Bachman Turner Overdrive, a rock and roll band that King was listening to at the time his publisher asked him to choose a pseudonym on the spot. So the Richard Bachman persona, for me, is, is the first of Stephen King's writing experiments that illustrate why he's more than just the king of horror. Other experiments include the serialized publication of The Green Mile, his e-book Riding the Bullet before e-books were a thing, the simultaneous publication of Desperation and the Regulators, his collaboration with Peter Straub, and his long-form storytelling with the Dark Tower saga. Now, as I've done with other collections... Sorry, but I'm not going to review all of the uh, Richard Bachman books. I'm going to review two, The Long Walk and The Running Man. 
And so I will begin the long walks review with a Wikipedia summary so that I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. From Wikipedia, 100 teenage boys participate in an annual walking contest called the long walk, or just the walk. Each contestant, called a walker, must maintain a speed of at least 4 miles per hour. If he drops below that speed for 30 seconds, he receives a verbal warning. A walker who slows down again after receiving three warnings is ticketed. The meaning of this action is intentionally kept vague at first, but it soon becomes clear that buying a ticket means to be shot dead by soldiers riding in half-tracks along the roadside. Walkers may be shot immediately for certain serious violations, such as trying to leave the road or attacking the half-track, and are given warnings for minor violations, such as interfering with one another. The soldiers use electronic equipment to precisely determine a walker's speed. A walker clears one warning for every hour that he stays above the minimum speed. The event is run by a character known as the Major. The Major appears at the beginning of the walk to encourage the boys and start them on their way, and then occasionally thereafter. While the walkers initially greet him with awe and respect, they ridicule him in later appearances. The walk begins at the Maine Canada border at 9 o'clock in the morning of May 1st and travels down the east coast of the United States until the winner is determined. There are no stops, rest periods, or established finish line, and the walk does not pause for any reason, including bad weather or darkness. It only ends when one last walker is left alive. According to the rules, the walkers can obtain aid only from the soldiers, who distribute canteens of water and belts packed with food concentrates, apparently similar to the ones developed by NASA's space program just before the walk begins. They may request a fresh canteen at any time, and new food supplies are distributed at 9 o'clock every morning. Walkers may bring anything they can carry, including food or additional clothing, but cannot receive aid from bystanders. They are allowed to have bodily contact with onlookers as long as they stay on the road. While they cannot physically interfere with one another to detrimental effect, they can help each other, provided they stay above the 4 miles per hour. The winner receives the prize, anything he wants for the rest of his life. It's implied that many past winners have soon died after the walk due to its hazardous mental and physical challenges. The long walk is not only a physical trial, but a psychological one, as the walkers are continually pressed against the idea of death and their own mortality. One contestant from past years is described as having actually crawled at 4 miles per hour after suffering cramps in both feet. Several characters suffer mental breakdowns, one of them killing himself by tearing out his throat, and most characters experience some mental degeneration from stress and lack of sleep. The protagonist of the novel is Raymond Davis Gary, a 16-year-old boy from the town of Pownall in Androscoggin County, Maine. Early on, he falls in with several other boys, including Peter McFreeze, Arthur Baker, Hank Olson, Collie Parker, Pearson Harkness, and Abraham, who refer to themselves as the Musketeers. Another walker, Gary Barkovich, quickly established himself as an external antagonist, as he quickly angers his fellow walkers with multiple taunts of dancing on their graves. This results in the death of fellow walker Rank, who is ticketed after repeatedly trying to assault Barkovich. Lastly, the most alluring and mysterious walker is a boy named Stebbins. Throughout the walk, Stebbins establishes himself as a loner, observing the ground beneath him as he listens to his fellow walker's complaints, seemingly unaffected by the mental and physical strains. The only character Stebbins truly interacts with is Garrity. In one conversation, Garrity alludes to Alice in Wonderland, likening Stebbins to the Caterpillar. Stebbins, however, corrects him. He believes himself to be more of a white rabbit type. 
Along the road, the walkers learn that one of their numbers, Scram, initially the heavy odds-on favorite to win the walk, is married. When Scram gets pneumonia, the remaining walkers agree that the winner will use some of the prize to take care of his pregnant widow, Kathy. Members of the public interfering with the walkers can receive an interference ticket. This nearly occurs when the mother of a walker named Percy tries on several occasions to get on the road and find her son. At her last attempt, he has already been killed for attempting to sneak away. Only the intervention of the local police keeps her from being executed. The second instance is when a spectator's dog runs across the road in front of the walkers and is shot. However, one man is able to throw the walkers watermelon slices before being hauled away by the police rather than the soldiers. Several walkers receive third warnings after taking the watermelon, but none of them are shot. Garrity becomes closest to McVries, a boy with a prominent facial scar who speculates that his own reason for joining the walk is a subconscious death wish. When Garrity suffers a short mental breakdown following the death of one of his friends, McVries takes several warnings in order to get him moving again. By the evening of the fifth day, the walk has progressed into Massachusetts, the first time in 17 years that it has done so. There are only nine walkers left. Earlier, Stebbins revealed to Garrity and McVries that he is the illegitimate son of the Major. Stebbins states that he used to think the Major was unaware of his existence, but it turns out that the Major has numerous illegitimate children nationwide. Four years earlier, the Major took Stebbins to the finish of the long walk. Now Stebbins feels that the Major has set him up to be the rabbit motivating others to walk further to prolong the race just as rabbits are used in dog races. Stebbins' plan upon winning the walk is to ask to be taken into his father's house as his prize. Finally, Garrity decides to give up after realizing that Stebbins has shown almost no weakness over the duration of the walk. Garrity catches up with Stebbins to tell him this, but before he can speak, Stebbins collapses and dies. Thus, Garrity is declared the winner. Unaware of the celebration going on around him, Garrity gets up from Stebbins' side and keeps on walking, believing the race is to still continue as he hallucinates a dark figure not far ahead that he thinks is just another competitor. He ignores a jeep coming towards him in which the Major comes to award him the victory, thinking it is a trespassing vehicle. When a hand touches his shoulder, Garrity somehow finds the strength to run. So... The long walk uh, is clearly an allegory for life. You walk on the road until you can't walk anymore. You try and make sense of it while you walk. You try and make sense of the death that happens around you. You try and make meaning from what you see with whom you interact. A line on the road, for instance, becomes a metaphor for life when it's really just paint on pavement. The people with whom you walk are varied in size and shape, intellect and interest. Some of them your friends, some aren't, and most you don't know. Now, I, I, I always thought that The Long Walk was a missed opportunity for a dark little movie. But in the wake of The Hunger Games, it would look derivative and, I think, boring by comparison. And honestly, it's just probably one of those cases where the book is more interesting. King wastes a little time establishing this dystopian world. He paints it with a bleak brush, introducing the Major as a sociopath, hints that Garrity's father has been taken away, teases the walk. After the numbers are assigned, the walk commences, and immediately the tension rises, with one of the walkers getting a warning, with another character explaining the rules of the game and why getting that warning was smart early in the walk. It's spoon-fed exposition, but it comes naturally to King. You know, even at this point, you know, he's an early writer. In the context of its presentation, it works without feeling too clunky or on the nose. We learn early on uh, what getting your ticket means with a character who gets a Charlie horse. The character dies for it. The stakes are then raised, and the reader knows what the characters are in for. So, that's really all of the ongoing analysis that I'm going to give for this story, because basically, with a story about walking, there's not much for our characters to do but walk, talk, and die. 
So through our characters, you know, King muses on the big topics in life, love and death and the meaning of life. You know, I, I just, like I said, I just don't, I, I usually when I read, you know, for instance, um, next week's review, uh, which I'll get to next week, I would read and then I would find something to comment on. So I would take out my phone and I would take notes. I would continue reading and I would take notes and maybe it would fall under the character section of the notes or it would fall under the theme section of the notes or just the running analysis, you know, something that I wanted to point out in that particular scene. But with this, it's just very repetitive. The characters discuss a topic, a character dies, another topic is discussed, another character dies. That's kind of it. While the Bachman Books as a Collection was published in 85, The Long Walk was published in 1979, and it really feels like the work of a younger writer. Knowing what I know about King's disdain for adverbs, I imagine he'd struggle with portions of this novella now. For instance, the small dog barked at them ratchetingly, someone yelled thickly, a bird twitted sleepily, a crow cawed raucously, McVries twitched his head oddly, that's just a sample all taken from the same page so the thing that that really stands out for me about this novel as i read it um was that you know i mentioned that it was written by a younger stephen king this, this feels like this was written by a horny 13 year old to be perfectly honest it is ridiculous the amount of emphasis he puts on crotches and breasts Though it was published in the 1970s, it was written when he was a freshman in college in 1966. So, you know, I mean, that makes a little bit more sense. Um, it's like uh, in the review of Skeleton Crew, I talked about the raft. And there's a way out of place sex scene in the raft. And both stories were, were written at the same time. Now, as I headed into this novella, I expected to take, like I, like I said, you know, just furious notes the way I do with other books of his. I figured that I would be spending a lot of time talking about the big topics within this story. But really, aside from stating that the walk is a metaphor for life, I just don't think there's much to say. I mean, yeah, the characters talk about life and death and sex and relationships, but these conversations don't really gel together to form an argument or, or any sort of overarching belief. There's a condemnation for the bloodthirst of society, which sacrifices its youth for entertainment, uh, which is chilling, I guess, when you realize that this story predated reality television. You know, you have to give King a lot of credit for envisioning a future that's not too distant from our present. But honestly, outside of the concept, which I still find fascinating, don't let me, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I was let down very much so by the reread. You know, when I first read it when I was a kid, uh, I thought it was tense. I thought it was really deep. You know, like, really deep. Um, now that I think it just, it goes on for, like, 100 pages too long. You know, on one hand, it's interesting that the length of the novella mirrors the endless feeling of the walk itself, but it just doesn't make for an interesting reread. I guess in the wake of real reality television, this just doesn't seem as shocking to me. You know, I mentioned The Hunger Games before, and I believe that those novels owe a lot to this novella, uh... You know, while the Hunger Games trilogy lacks the existentialism of The Long Walk, they're certainly more entertaining. And as existential thrillers go, I'd choose watching Joe Carnahan's The Grey over reading The Long Walk. Frank Darabont, original showrunner of The Walking Dead, director of Stephen King's The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and The Mist, has the movie rights for The Long Walk. Now, you know, I, I'm saying that there's not much to really talk about when it comes to The Mist, but, or uh, The Long Walk, but I, I think that in his hands, he could do something with it. 
You know, watching the characters stumble and fall, capturing the grisly details, the unbearably long journey, you know, uh, these are all things that I can see uh, Darabont doing well. You know, he mentioned that he'd like to keep it small and existential, so who knows? You know, maybe we'll see it someday. You know, when that happens, be sure to tune into my review here at Stephen Kingcast. So we have some Kingisms here, uh, the first of which is uh, racism to denote the negative qualities within a character. Um, we have a character being hit by a car so hard their shoes go flying off. You know, Garrity remembers a childhood acquaintance in which this happened. This is a, a visual image that we see uh, many times throughout Stephen King's books. We have the magic circle. Um, within the, the novella, Harkness was a part of the group that Garrity was a part of, a segment of his subclan, part of a magic circle that Garrity belonged to. And if one part of that circle could be broken, any part of it could be broken. This magic circle will be explored in length next week we have religious insanity uh when tubbins goes insane he sounds a lot like mrs carmody or margaret white and that ends the thoughts that i have for the long walk i'm disappointed in myself i'm sorry i didn't even make it to a half an hour and most of what i've said so far is just a wikipedia summary when i sat down and envisioned uh, talking about Stephen King books for the Stephen King cast when I first started the podcast, I I thought that I was going to have so much to say about The Long Walk. So much to say. I, I, I can't believe it. I, I was really bored <laughs> reading this novella. Really bored. Um, which only goes to show that the rest of his novels, you know, and, and books, he just sets the, the bar so high that I just, I feel that, I don't know, Maybe I just wasn't in the mood. Maybe right now I'm just a little burned out from reading Stephen King. It kind of happens. It's what I'm doing 24-7 nowadays. So um, maybe that's it. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just everything that I said is true. And it is. it just doesn't hold up upon a reread. So I don't know, everyone. What do you think? Let me know writing into StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. The next uh, Bachman book that I'm going to discuss is The Running Man. And... Like I did with The Long Walk, I'm going to start off with a Wikipedia summary. The Running Man is a science fiction novel by Stephen King, first published under the pseudonym Richard Bachman in 1982 as a paperback original. It was collected in 1985 in the omnibus The Bachman Books. The novel is set in a dystopian United States during the year 2025, in which the nation's economy is in ruins and world violence is rising. The story follows protagonist Ben Richards as he participates in the game show The Running Man, in which contestants, allowed to go anywhere in the world, are chased by hunters employed to kill them. The book has a total of 101 chapters laid out in a countdown format. The first is titled Minus 100 and Counting, with the numbers decreasing until the last chapter, Minus 0 and Counting, or in some versions, merely 0. zero, zero. The story's protagonist, Ben Richards, is a citizen of Co-op City, a suburb of the fictional Harding, which is located somewhere in the country west of Detroit in the year 2025. The world's economy is in a shambles, and America has become a totalitarian dystopia. Richards is unable to find work, having been blacklisted from his trade, and he needs money to get medicine for his gravely ill daughter, Kathy. His wife, Sheila, has resorted to prostitution to bring in money for the family. In desperation, Richard turns to the Games Network, a government-operated television station that runs violent game shows. After rigorous physical and mental testing, Richards is selected to appear on The Running Man 
the game's network's most popular, lucrative, and dangerous program. He meets with Dan Killian, the executive producer of the program who describes the challenges he will face once the game begins. The contestant is declared an enemy of the state and released with a 12-hour head start before the Hunters, an elite team of network-employed hitmen, are sent out to kill him. The contestant earns $100 per hour that he stays alive and avoids capture, an additional $100 for each law enforcement officer or hunter he kills, and a grand prize of $1 billion if he survives for 30 days. Viewers can receive cash rewards for informing the network of the runner's whereabouts. The runner is given $4,800 in a pocket video camera before he leaves the studio. He can travel anywhere in the world, and each day he must videotape two messages and mail them back to the studio for broadcasting. If he neglects to send the messages, he will be held in default of his game's contract and stop accumulating prize money, but will continue to be hunted indefinitely. Killian states that no contestant has survived long enough to claim the grand prize, nor does he expect anyone to ever do so. As the game begins, Richard obtains a disguise and false identification records, traveling first to New York City and then to Boston. In Boston, he is tracked down by the hunters and only manages to escape by setting off an explosion in the basement of a YMCA building that kills five police officers. He narrowly escapes through a sewer pipe and emerges in the city's impoverished ghetto where he takes shelter with a gang member named Bradley Throckmorton and his family. Richard learns from Bradley that the air is severely polluted and the poor are kept down as permanent underclass. Bradley also says that the network exists only as a propaganda machine to pacify and distract the public. Richard tries to incorporate this information into his video messages, but finds that the network dubs over his voice with obscenities and threats during the podcast. The broadcast, sorry. Bradley smuggles Richard past a government checkpoint in Manchester, New Hampshire, where he disguises himself as a half-blind priest. In addition, Bradley provides Richards with a set of mailing labels for his videotapes that will leave the network unable to track him by their postmarks. Richard spends three days in Manchester, but he dreams that Bradley has betrayed him after being tortured. He travels to a safe house owned by a friend of Bradley in Portland, Maine, but is reported by the owner's mother. As the police and the hunters close in on the safe house, Richards is wounded but manages to escape and spends the night sleeping in an abandoned construction site. The next morning, after arranging to mail his videotapes, Richard carjacks a woman named Amelia Williams and takes her hostage. Alerting the media to his presence, he makes his way to an airport in Derry, Maine, passing through the towns of Rockland, Camden, and Winterport along the way. Richards has a standoff at the airport and manages to bluff his way onto a plane past Evan McCone, the lead hunter, by pretending to be carrying an explosive charge powerful enough to destroy the entire facility. By this time, Richards has broken the running man's survival record of eight days and five hours. Richard takes both Amelia and McCone as hostages and has the plane fly low over populated areas to avoid being shot down by surface-to-air missiles. However, he is confronted by Killian on a video call who states that he knows Richards does not have any explosives, as the plane's security system would have detected if he did. To Richard's surprise, Killian offers him the job of lead hunter. Richard is hesitant to take the offer, worried that his family will become a target. Killian then informs him that Sheila and Kathy were brutally murdered over 10 days earlier, even before Richards first appeared on the show. He gives Richards some time to make his decision. Richards falls asleep and dreams of his murdered family and a gruesome crime scene. With nothing left to lose, he calls Killian back and accepts the offer. He kills the flight crew and McCone, but suffers a mortal gunshot wound from the latter. 
After allowing Amelia to parachute to safety, the last strength to override the plane's autopilot and fly the plane towards a skyscraper housing the game's network. The book ends with the plane crashing into the tower, resulting in the deaths of Richards and Killian. The novel closes with a description, and it rained fire 20 blocks away. Uh, <clears throat> so, I, the first thing I want to talk about here is, uh, this is an ending uh, that takes on sensations and connotations that did not exist when it was first published. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's just, when it was first published, I mean, like, it's a... Uh, you know, it's 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 a brutal ending, right? You know, but and clearly in the wake of nine eleven, it's just just conjures conjures so so much. Um, like the long walk, the running man speaks about the machine, the system that operates all around us, a man-made god running independently of its creators, one that uses its citizens for entertainment. Like the long walk, it predates the era of reality television, and of all of King books, the Bachman books, this is the one most ripe for adaptation. Yeah, I mean, we all know that it was made into a movie starring the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but uh, I mean, I, I just don't feel like the, the movie capitalized on the themes present within the text. I mean, prophetically, this novel created a world of reality television with cash prizes, uh, audience participation, confessionals. The, the type of stuff that we see in this early 80s novel is something that we see all the time, anytime we turn on a television to watch any number of reality of television shows all in all the 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 story itself it's a bleak world of hard streets harder characters our lead isn't necessarily likable but then again no one is in this new world richard's anti-authority qualities speak of a younger author in the same ways that the punisher seems so cool for younger readers the chapter countdown is a great use of tension that begins as soon as you start reading. We get the immediacy with Richard's sick child and a sense of the world, at least co-op city, which seems like a wild Detroit. We learn everything that we have to about Richard's through the application process, where he delivers exposition to the audience through a series of answers to a receptionist. You know, We then see the class system of this future world and how bitter our character is. On chapter minus 87 and counting, we learn that he's been selected for the running man and what that entails. We learn of the odds stacked against Richards, of McCone and the Hunters. In chapter 81 and counting, Richard sees that the studio has changed his photograph, a prototype version of Photoshop. Here we see the unreality of reality television, which we are all the more familiar with uh, today, but really must have been a revolutionary concept upon release. In the same chapter, Killian advises Richards to stay with his people, the poor, because in the middle class, uh, they, they will want to see him dead. And it's a clever way to comment on very real social class issues in our country. King sells the paranoia of the hunt, with Richards overanalyzing everyone around him, desperately trying to remain alert. This causes Richards to demonstrate some ingenuity, blowing up the YMCA to cover his escape, which pushes him into the hands of Stacy and Bradley. We get some world building here with a discussion around emphysema due to all the pollution in the world, and that motivates Richards, who now has a cause, to use his platform to reach the masses. But his confessionals are either redubbed or cut so that the American public can't hear the truth. You know, once Richard has his hostage, we see the class system start um, to turn against each other. And from there, uh, you know, we, we just hurtle on towards the, the end of the novel 
which, like I said before, results in a plane um, being smashed into a building, um, which, like the rest of the, the story, is, is, is darkly prophetic. So I don't... I, I feel bad, guys, um, because it's not even a half an hour, and I honestly don't have much else to say. Um, other than both of the stories present here are... Um, they, they predate reality television, and it's amazing that how much they speak about us and our culture um, in the reality television world that we live in. So I think that The, the Running Man is, is a, like I said earlier, is a novel that, that would work very well in this day and age. And I, I, I think that would be interesting if we get one that um, doesn't necessarily resemble this story as it is, but one that's not as much of a satire um, and just a, a cheesy 80s bonkers gonzo action movie the, the way that the, the Schwarzenegger version is. Um, but I think that something in between would make for a really interesting modern commentary on the world of reality television. And I, I haven't heard of, of anything in the works, um, but that would be that would be pretty cool, I think. All right, everyone, uh, if you were looking forward to a more in-depth analysis on the Bachman books, I, I really am sorry. Um, but stick around for next week as I get into the the, the Schwarzenegger movie that, that I've referenced already. So I haven't seen that movie since it, it came out, since I was a kid, so I'll be interested to, to be able to revisit it along with all of you. So in the meantime, uh, you know, if you haven't done so already, why don't you head on over to, to iTunes um, uh, because I could really use as many reviews and subscriptions because uh, I don't know how, how people are listening to this, whether they're, they're going through Podbean or Stitcher, um, but I, I do know that if you go through iTunes and you subscribe, that just it bumps the, the podcast itself up more on on the charts it kind of gives it more visibility which is something that that i would like um, just a little bit more visibility out there so if you haven't done so already i mean it, if you still listen through podbean or another device it, it just won't hurt to, to subscribe through itunes um so that would that would be a huge solid and uh you know feel free to uh follow me on instagram and twitter and facebook and tumblr and pinterest because that's where i'll be all you have to do is search for Stephen Kingcast. And if you have any thoughts, uh, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And in the meantime, uh, have a great week, and I will see you all here. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast. Do the walk, do the walk on